Hey, good morning. It's great to see you. I'm so grateful to worship with you today, your beautiful church. I'm so proud to be your pastor and excited to jump into the Word of God with you this morning. If you have your Bible with you, would you go ahead and open up to the book of Matthew? And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to use one of those pew Bibles in front of you, uh, those black pew Bibles, and you'll find Matthew chapter 5 on page 858 uh, in the Pew Bible. While you're turning there, getting ready to go, quick commercial. I want to tell you about a picture that's in our upper lobby. It's over here in this corner. Maybe you saw it when you came in this morning. It is an artist's rendition of our church. Uh, Back in December, I was down at Brood Awakenings Coffee Shop in downtown Hingham, and in a display window next to the entrance uh, was a series of Uh, artwork from a local Hingham artist and it was different Hingham landmarks with the word Hingham up in the sky and uh, she had done a version of St. Paul's and she had done a version of Old Ship Church and I thought these are really cool Uh, this artist is really gifted and it would be so cool if we had one of our church so I got on her Etsy shop saw all the work that she's done really gifted And I emailed her, hey, what are the chances that uh, we could commission you to do a piece of artwork for our church? She said, let's do it. Isabel Allen is her name. She lives here in Hingham, graduated from Hingham High School a few years ago, and uh, is a really gifted artist. And so she did this rendition of our church, and uh, it's beautiful. And when you look at it, you'll think, well, those trees aren't really there. And what is this? Because it's an artist's rendition, it's not a photograph, and uh, it took her hours and hours to do, and I think it's super cool. So check it out. If you want a copy of it, you can buy it from her, support a local Hingham artist. And look, don't tell St. Paul's and Old Ship this, but ours is the best one that she's done in the series. I'm just telling you now, it's dynamite, all right? So check that out uh, before you get out of here this morning. Matthew chapter 5, so we're going to spend our time today. Talk with me about anger. Who are some famous angry people uh, in popular culture? When, when you think about those who embody or personify anger, who do you think about? And uh, let me give you a few options. Could you go back for me to my title screen? Thank you. There we go. All right. When you think about angry people in pop culture, who do you think about? Here's a few popular options. Did I not have those photos in there? What? You know what? That's the wrong PowerPoint anyways. It doesn't matter. We'll be good without it. Okay. So here's what's up. When you think about angry people in pop culture, who do you think about? You think about uh, the Incredible Hulk. Yeah. He's the big one. Anger is his prime characteristic. You might think of Cruella de Vil, one of the finest villain names in all of movie history. You might think of Grumpy Dwarf. Uh, Yeah, angry, real attitude problem with that guy. Uh, You might think of the character named Anger from the movie Inside Out. I mean, he is anger personified. Uh, And if we're going to think about all of these possible characters, there's one more name that you have to have in mind, and that is your own. Every single one of us 
has an anger issue. And immediately you push back and you say, no, that's not me, but I know a guy. You see, our problem is we fail to recognize our anger issues because we define anger in such a way that exonerates us from the accusation altogether. Oh, an angry person is, yells, they're loud, they throw things, they're bent out of shape or whatever. We define it in a way that gives us the pass. But quiet anger is just as deadly, just as dangerous as loud anger. Quiet anger is the sort of anger that keeps score It's passive-aggressive. It gives the silent treatment. It complains and criticizes and argues and is hostile. For some people, anger travels with us like a dark passenger we can't shake. Anger was the theme of our men's retreat uh, last month. And I had several men tell me that coming into the weekend... They felt like the the theme didn't relate to them. But once we sat with the word, we all found that we are well acquainted with sinful anger. People who are caught up with sinful anger, they live hellish lives. It's a really brutal way to live day by day, enraged, angry, uh, just bent out of shape at the simplest things. And those sinfully angry people make the lives of the people around them just miserable. Angry spouses can make for short marriages. Angry parents can make for traumatized kids. Angry neighbors make for tall fences. Angry bosses make for short employments. Here's the thing. You and I must become Christians as it relates to our anger. We've got to learn to trust Jesus and stop complaining and criticizing and arguing and being hostile. You deserve freedom from your sinful anger, and so do the people in your life. And this issue is vitally important to Jesus. How do we know? Well, Matthew chapter 5 tells us. Remember what we studied last week? We we looked at this really dense paragraph in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, where Jesus told us this about himself. He said that he is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy, and he's the accomplisher of everything that salvation requires. He's the fulfillment and the accomplishment of all of these things. And that paragraph tees up the rest of chapter 5, where Jesus is going to give explanations about the law of God and our relationship to it. And of all the topics he could talk about first... Of all the things he could choose from to address first, the very first thing he talks about is our anger. Your anger matters to Jesus because your peace matters to Jesus. Now, if you identify in yourself this morning an anger issue, one sermon is not going to fix it. This is not a finish line today, but rather a starting line. And so my purpose in preaching this passage is to spark your transformation from a person of anger to a person of peace. And our passage gives us two reasons to transform our sinful anger into the likeness of Christ. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 5, 
starting in verse 21. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother and sister and then come back and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Why would someone give attention to their anger and its expressions and strive to be more like Jesus in this part of their life? Well, Jesus has given us two reasons to go to battle against our sinful anger. The first reason is negative. The second reason is positive. So if you're taking notes this morning, the first reason for us to address our sinful anger is because Jesus promises judgment on our sinful anger. First reason to seek transformation in this area of our lives is because Jesus promises judgment on our sinful anger, and we find that in verses 21 and 22. Verse 21 is the first of six statements by Jesus where he challenges the crowd's understanding of the law. Six times in the rest of chapter 5, he's going to say this phrase, you've heard it said, fill in the blank, but I tell you. You've heard it said this, but I tell you this. And so his opening statement, the first of these six, is in verse 21. You've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who's angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Who is Jesus to think that he can change the meaning of the law of God? Here's who he is. He is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy, and he is the accomplisher of everything redemption requires. That's what he just told us in the paragraph before this. Jesus is one of one. There is no one else. He is the only begotten of the Father. That's who he is. And I would challenge you on this point that he is changing the law of God. He's not changing the law of God in any way. Rather, he is clarifying God's original intent. Notice Jesus didn't say, you've seen it written. He said, you've heard it said. His problem is not with the word as written. It's with the word as interpreted and as applied to our lives. Now imagine this scene with me, Jesus sitting on this hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee, surrounded by these people on this day. Imagine if he had asked for a show of hands, how many of you in this crowd have committed murder? My guess is that few, if any hands at all, would have gone up. Everyone on that hillside believed themselves to be obedient to God's law not to murder, Because this is how they've heard it explained. 
But then Jesus says this. He says, well, I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. All right, now time for another show of hands. Based on what God meant by this command, how many of you are guilty of murder? And my guess is that every hand on that hillside would have gone up. A 100% guilty rate in that audience and this audience. Here's what we do with God's law. We manipulate it so that it serves our own self-righteousness. We'll read the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not commit murder. And we think we've nailed it because we let people exist. We think we've got this right because we know there are other people who have gotten it wrong and we're not like those people. Let me pause here and say a word to those people or those families for whom this is not just some metaphorical exercise. If you or someone you love, you're guilty of willful or negligent homicide. It's important that you hear and believe that God's grace is also for you. We have powerful examples in the Bible of God's grace given to those who have taken a life. People like Cain and Moses and King David. Saul of Tarsus, an accessory in a murder. God will not turn away anyone who comes to him by faith. And so while such acts might require long consequences in this life, the spiritual consequences are taken by Christ at the cross for every repentant person. There is grace to be found in Jesus Christ. Now, we are all guilty, every one of us, of manipulating God's law to serve our own self-righteousness. We do it even with this very passage. I mean, have you ever heard someone use this passage in this way? They might say something like, oh, you, you can't say the word fool because Jesus said, if you call a moron a fool, you'll go to hell. Yeah, you got to use a different word for that waste of space other than fool. Good Christians don't call idiots fools. Here's Jesus fighting against our self-righteousness, and what do we do? We think it's all about the word fool, so just change your language and you'll, you'll meet the requirement. It shows how messed up our relationship is to God's law. Jesus is aiming at your heart. He isn't trying to merely change your vocabulary, but to transform your sinful pit of a heart from hatred for other people to love for other people. But it is so hard for us to believe that Jesus is talking about us here. We resist owning our sin through all kinds of justifications. And even if you still think this doesn't apply to you, let me give an example that might resonate. Many years ago, a different church where I served, there was a woman, a senior adult woman, uh, who was 
sinfully angry all the time. She was mean. She was hostile. Uh, when she entered a room, conflict came with her. On one Sunday, her adult daughter came to church for the first time in years. And here's how the angry mother introduced her daughter to me. She said, this is my heathen daughter. Pain and frustration flashed across the daughter's face as she shook her head at her mother's jab. And if my mom was that nasty, that mean, that brazenly hostile, and went to church, I'd be a heathen too. That angry woman had never ended a life, but she killed her daughter repeatedly with her angry words and insults. And not only that, her anger created in her daughter sinful anger towards her mother. So not only did the mother commit this murder, but she turned her daughter into a murderer as well. And this is not an exceptional case. This is not some extreme example. This is standard living in a world marred by sin. She was guilty, and so are we. And maybe we will accept a little bit of our guilt, but it is our tendency to justify our guilt in order to make us look innocent. And so we'll blame our circumstances for our anger, or we'll blame the other people involved. They're the reason that I got so angry, or I said this thing, or I've acted this way. And if we do look inward, we'll even justify what we see inside by saying things like, oh, I've just got a short fuse. Oh, I, I, I just tell it straight. I just, this is just how I am. Or whatever, I'm redheaded, I'm Irish, whatever the angry cliches are. We justify it. But you can't disguise the guilt of your sinful anger. Jesus is not speaking here to people who are merely in danger of committing this sin. He is speaking to people who are guilty and they are comfortable in their guilt. How does God feel about your sinful anger? Well, Jesus is clear. Look at verse 22. He says, I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. Three different statements. Three different ways that Jesus assures us of God's judgment on our sinful anger. In these three different phrases, the action in each one escalates. So we begin with someone who's angry. It escalates to an insult, and then it escalates to calling someone a fool. Each of those escalations has a corresponding punishment. What's interesting about those punishments is that they are all way over the top for the stated infractions. Right? People don't go before judges for everyday insults. And the word that's translated fool here, here's, again, here's what you and I have done in our self-righteousness. We've read that as if that's the worst word. That's the baddest word, Jesus. Can, you can't say that word. It's a common insult in Jesus' day. It was not extraordinarily bad as if that's the king of all insults. It was a common insult. 
a common anger that was allowed and permitted and practiced. And so you're telling me someone is going to face hellfire for using a common insult. Jesus is teaching us that God takes our sinful anger infinitely more serious than we do. And you must not take his warning lightly. Every one of us is guilty of this sin, and every one of us will face God's hellfire judgment for that sin. And that's a crushing realization unless, unless you belong to the one who is the fulfillment and accomplisher of our salvation. On the cross, Jesus endured all of God's judgment on our sin. Your sinful anger will absolutely be judged by God. The only question is, will you bear that judgment or will Jesus? And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, then you need to listen closely to what he says here. You need to believe what he says about you, that your life will be judged by God. And you need to believe what he says about himself, that if you will turn from your sin and trust in him, the one who died for your sin and rose again, and is coming again, then you'll be forgiven and saved. Jesus takes the judgment that our sin deserves, and he gives us a new relationship with God, and he grants us eternal life. So those of you who are already followers of Jesus, the cross is our confidence in the grace of God and our power to rid ourselves of every expression of sinful anger. Jesus died on the cross to reconcile us to God. And if that relationship can be reconciled, then every relationship finds hope in Jesus Christ. And if Christ took all of God's anger for our sin at the cross, then who are we to allow anger to abide in our lives or to think that we have better reasons to be angry than God does? Jesus shows us the better way. He breaks us free from the power of sin and the penalty of sin so that we can pursue righteousness. Hearing these words of Jesus, we must all come before the throne of grace, mourning our sins committed against each other, and ask God to change us by the power of the cross. So why? Why should you transform your anger. Come to Christ so that your anger is transformed. The first reason is because it's going to be judged. But there's a second reason, a positive reason that Jesus gives us. And the second reason is this. Jesus provides a cure for our sinful anger. Jesus provides a cure for our sinful anger in verses 23 to 26. So having sounded the warning of God's judgment against our sinful anger, Jesus then gives us the desired behavior, right? He isn't just going to tell you, don't do that. He is going to then tell us, here's what you should do. Here's here's the direction we should lead our lives. And so he helps us understand how we should respond to anger-inducing situations with two illustrations. The first illustration involves our worship. The second illustration is legal in nature. So look with me at verses uh, 23 to 26. Verse 23, here's the first worship illustration. He says, if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. 
First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. And here's the second illustration. It's a legal illustration. He says, reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you'll never get out of there until you've paid the last penny. From these two illustrations, Jesus gives us three principles that guide us in a different response to our sinful anger. Three principles. I want you to write these down. The first principle is relational awareness. What do we do instead of just giving ourselves into sinful anger and all of its impulses? First of all, we, we pursue relational awareness. In both illustrations, the person in focus is aware that there's something that needs to be fixed in the relationship. In verse 23, the person goes to worship, but then remembers their fellow believer has something against them. In verse 25, it's evident that the legal adversary has a case against the person. Now, this may seem like too simple a task to just identify a relationship that needs repair, but, I mean, how often do we allow conflict to go unresolved or broken relationships to never heal? We do that stuff all the time. Relational awareness means this. We're not just aware of the conflict, but we recognize there is a need and an opportunity for this to be fixed. And for that relational awareness to become a reality, you might need to ask some people in your life to evaluate your behavior, your demeanor, your emotions. Am I an angry person? Am I hostile? Am I defensive? Do I bring conflict? Am I passive-aggressive? Now, a little tip if you're going to ask someone those questions. If you ask someone that lives with you, they will not be honest because you're mean. And they got to live with the consequences of that. Your anger has forced them into obscuring the truth out of self-preservation. So ask someone who can tell you the truth without bearing the consequences of your sinful anger. And listen and receive so that you would be relationally aware of the impact of your actions and demeanor on the people around you. Relational awareness is the first principle. The second principle is remorseful urgency. There's a sense of urgency in both illustrations. In verse 24, when you realize your fellow believer has something against you, you're to leave your gift in front of the altar. Don't worship first and then go fix the relationship. Go fix the relationship first and then come back to worship. And in verse 25, you're to reach a settlement quickly. It's a word Jesus uses. Reach it quickly with your adversary. There's a sense of urgency here. Look, when you're thirsty, you want a drink of water now. When you're sick, you want medicine immediately. And when you have a broken relationship in your life, followers of Jesus dare not delay addressing it. And it's not just urgency. It's remorseful urgency. In both illustrations, we are owning our faults that have created the conflict or that have fueled the conflict. Some people move quickly to conflict just because they're fighters. They want to inflame the situation. They want to beat the other person into submission. That's not what followers of Jesus do. We move quickly, prudently, for the sake of healing and restoration. The third principle is decisive action. So relational awareness, 
remorseful urgency and decisive action. Again, in verse 24, Jesus tells his listeners to leave their gifts at the altar and to go be reconciled with their fellow believers before returning to worship. Now, I want you to think about the geography of what Jesus has just said here. He's speaking to Galileans, right? The only place they would take a gift to the altar is at the temple, which is located in Jerusalem. The region of Galilee is roughly 80 miles from the holy city of Jerusalem. And so here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying if you've traveled 80 miles to the temple and you're at the altar, you're about to give your gift, you recognize and remember then that your neighbor back home has something against you, leave that gift. Go 80 miles back home, make things right, 80 miles back, and then offer your gift, then worship. Take decisive action. Recognize what needs to be done and when it needs to be done. I can't worship now. I've got to fix this problem. I'm going to go fix that problem, and then I'm going to come back and worship. And all God's people said, yeah, right. (laughs) Like, that's going to happen. If I didn't worship every time someone had beef with me, I would never worship. I make these eyes at you. Hope you're listening to yourself. Some of you sang a song this morning. You should have offered an apology. Got to take decisive action. Likewise, in verse 25, look, this legal illustration, Jesus is not giving legal advice. He's illustrating the principle of decisive action. We've got to act urgently and decisively to fix what's broken between us and our adversary. Do what's needed to make things right. Don't allow bad relationships to remain unresolved. Now, I want to give a word of caution here. There are some situations in which resolution is not possible and is probably not wise. might not be possible because the person uh, with whom you have that conflict, they might be deceased. Uh, or there just might be any number of reasons why you cannot have contact with that person. It might not be wise to seek resolution for any number of trauma-related reasons. So while Christians should be the most hopeful about the ability of Christ to heal our most broken relationships, we've got to recognize that even Jesus taught us that not every relationship can be reconciled in this life. Just earlier in chapter 5, Jesus talked about the persecution that would come to his followers. So there, uh, there are some instances where persecutors become our brothers and sisters in the faith. The Apostle Paul is an example of that, but that's not true in every situation. Not every relationship can be reconciled uh, here in this life. And we've got to remember also what the Apostle Paul said, echoing the words of Jesus in Romans 12, 18. Paul said, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So it's not possible in this world to live at peace with everyone, but as far as it depends on you, make every wise effort to resolve the broken relationship. And why is it so important that we obey Jesus on this point? Well, the actions that Jesus calls for, are evidence of a repentant heart. 
Our conflicts reveal not only where we stand in relation to our opponent, but where we stand in relation to God. And when we enter conflict, when we allow anger to rule our hearts, we are standing for ourselves and against God. We are saying, my kingdom come, my will be done. When we perpetuate anger and conflict, we are being ruled by our sinful desires The anger in our hearts makes us like Cain, who murdered his own brother. But Jesus has shown us that it is possible to live at peace with each other here and now. We will have conflict with each other. But Jesus, who has reconciled us to God through his own body, leads us to be reconciled to each other so that we would experience the harmony of heaven here and now. We've got to be transformed from the inside out. Our sinful anger has to be transformed into Christ-like peace. And why should you do that? Jesus gave us two reasons in this passage. The first reason we should address our sinful anger is because it is going to be judged by God. And the second reason is because Jesus provides the cure. So I told you at the beginning of our time together, this sermon is not a finish line. It's a starting line for addressing your sinful anger. And I want to give you a tool to take home with you that you could use in the weeks ahead to begin the work of spiritual formation in your life. A really simple tool. You already have a copy of it probably in your hands right now. And that tool is the Beatitudes. Earlier in chapter 5, if you still got your Bible open, I want you to look at it with me. Earlier in chapter 5 are these eight blessing statements from Jesus that we call the Beatitudes. Eight statements of blessing. The first four, you might remember, uh, are about our posture with God. The second four are about our actions towards each other. And I want to walk you through a way to use the Beatitudes to help transform your heart so that you repent from sinful anger and you begin to respond to conflict in a way that looks more and more like Jesus. And so if you were to sit with your Bible open to Matthew 5 later today or maybe first thing tomorrow morning, you would sit with it open and interact with the Beatitudes through the lens of your sinful anger and it might look like this. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. That means that those who recognize their spiritual poverty before God are blessed. And so in this instance, those who know their sinful anger is a problem, those who own their sinful anger before God, those people are blessed. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, those who grieve their sinful anger and its impact on their relationship with God and the damage it's done to others, those people are blessed. Verse 5, blessed are the humble, who will come before God owning their sinful anger and its damages. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who want to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. God, take this angry heart away. Give me the peace of Christ. You're blessed when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 7, now we pivot to our actions towards other people. Blessed are the merciful who, although they might have reasons to be angry, choose peace rather than vengeance. Blessed are the pure in heart, who sincerely love even their adversaries and put the needs of others before their own. Blessed are the peacemakers, 
who have mastered their sinful anger and strive for peace, even in the most contentious situation. And blessed are those who are persecuted, those who bear the wrath of an angry world for the name of Christ. Use the Beatitudes as a roadmap to a transformed heart and temperament so that people would see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do you have a phone call to make today? Do you have a letter to write? An email to send? Do you owe an apology? Do you owe mercy? Will you believe Jesus and let your trust in him move you to swift action? Proverbs 29, 11 says this, a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. Let us live in the wisdom of Jesus. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we need your help with this, and so thank you for your word that pierces us and that diagnoses correctly. We are those who would justify ourselves. We are those who would justify our anger, our sin. We would justify broken relationships. There is no end to our self-righteousness and self-justification, but thank you for your word that diagnoses correctly. Thank you for your grace that comes even in the forms of warnings. It may be a hard grace, but it is still grace nevertheless because we know that you have something better for us. So help us in our repentance. Help us in our confession. Help us to own our brokenness before you, to come humbly before the throne of grace and to receive all the strength and the mercy you have. Lord, help us as we repent from our sinful anger. Reveal to us the depths of its damage not just to our own hearts, but to those in our lives. Give us courage to pursue the way of Jesus, to trust him, to not respond with sinful anger, but that we would respond to conflict with his peace and mercy. And Lord, I pray that above all, we would make sure our first relationship is correct, that that relationship is the one between us and you. So, Lord, bring salvation today to those who would turn to you by faith, that that relationship would be right, that their sin would be taken away, your wrath would be satisfied, and that new life in Christ would be theirs. Lord, thank you for this new life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing in response.